Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2? We've just begun a series on the Acts of the Apostles last week, and we're coming to Acts chapter 2 today. We last left the Apostles in huddled together in the upper room, prayerfully waiting for the promise that Jesus had made to them. To, as he was going away to the Father, he said, I will not leave you without help. I will send you a helper. And, and he had said to them, not many days from now he will come, so wait in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, but then moving out from there to Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth, and I'm sending you a helper for that mission. So there they were, huddled together in the upper room, waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And they were waiting prayerfully and of one mind together. Acts chapter 2 is the account of this helper's dramatic arrival on the scene. This promised helper is coming now in, in the text that we're reading. And this is a huge moment in the lives of these men and women and also in the, in the process of, of the unfolding plan of God in salvation. This is a huge moment. This is a moment when the church of Jesus Christ is formed. It is given birth. And its mission, its worldwide mission, is empowered and inaugurated right here. Let's read this text together, Acts chapter 2. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. When the day of Pentecost had come... They were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, continues Peter, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. 
And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a long and very important passage of Scripture, so we are not going to try to deal with it all today. But I thought it would be good to read it all so that we have a sense of this. This is one episode, one scene, and all of it holds together as part of the same miracle of this outpouring of the Spirit. Every, every part of that passage is a part of the miracle that God produced through the pouring out of his Spirit. We're going to cover it this week and next. There's three clear sections in this text. The first one is the miracle itself, the pouring out of the Spirit on the, on the disciples. Then there's Peter's defense of that, which turns into a sermon that he preaches um, to the crowd. And then there's the, the response to that sermon and the fruit that it produced in the lives of the audience. And so we're going to look at the first part mainly today, which is the outpouring of the Spirit, and just dip our feet a little bit in the waters of Peter's defense of what's going on from Joel. The chapter begins, when the day of Pentecost had come. Now Pentecost was a Jewish feast day, one of the three annual feasts commanded in the law of Moses. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 23, which lays out all of the holy convocations, all of the holy feasts that God commands in his law. Originally, it was known to the Israelites as the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of First Fruits. But as, as there had been this growing Greek influence among the people of God, they, they, it became known by a Greek word which referred to the way in which this, the date of this event or of this festival was calculated. So that too was part of a, an appointment of God in his law, a very specific calculation that he provided. And that was to be 50 days, this feast, this particular feast was to happen 50 days after the first Sunday following Passover. This word Pentecost is just a word that means 50th day. It was like a, it was a harvest festival. This is what they're celebrating, the Feast of First Fruits. It's not the end of harvest, it's the beginning of harvest. They bring the first fruits to the Lord to show their dependence on God for a good harvest. That's what this feast is about. It's sort of like our American Thanksgiving. That's the closest thing we have to relate to, American Thanksgiving. It was a joyful occasion, an opportunity for uh, people to come and thank God for his blessings and to offer praise in his courts. People from all over um, Judea would come, Galilee and other places, but even Jews we see from all over the world were present at this time. It was, it was required in the law that all the men, at least all the men, would come to Jerusalem for these appointed feast days and worship the Lord at his holy temple. So here they are. There's a lot of them in town for this day of celebration. Our own tradition of Thanksgiving is about 400 years old now. By the time this event happens in the day of Jesus, they've been doing this for 1,500 years. It's an amazing thing. Very deeply rooted tradition in the Jewish people. It celebrates the harvest, but it also became later to be associated with the giving of law of the law at Sinai for Moses. So they're, they're celebrating both these things, the harvest, the giving of the law. 
There's a lot of ta- people in town for this event, Jews from all over the known world, and many of whom apparently don't even, well, don't speak Hebrew as their first language. Maybe don't even speak Hebrew at all, which is maybe hard to imagine, except when you consider that there were lots of dispersions that took place. Um, the Jews were conquered by foreign nations, and they took a lot of them captive, and then they ended up living their lives in these foreign lands and taking on the, um, the, a lot of the language of those lands, living for generations outside of Israel, and it seems like Hebrew fell out of, of practice or use among a lot of these people. When they came to town, um, as it says, that they were many, there were many here, many devout men, men who really feared the Lord and wanted to honor him and had come to town. It says they were even living there. Some scholars think that the uh, Jews, uh, these devout men who had come from all over the world, had come possibly because there was this sense that these times were when the Lord was going to fulfill his promise to bring a Messiah. And they were devout men. They wanted to be there when it happened. They wanted to be back in their homeland. And so they had possibly not just visited for this event, but had resettled there. But historians say that they maintained their little language groups. They didn't, they even set up their own um, synagogues and worshiped the Lord in the language of their their former homeland where they had been living and the language that they knew. So this is the situation um, that the Lord uses or chooses in which to send his Holy Spirit. Is the timing accidental? This is a, this is a festival of harvest. It's a harvest festival. And remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. He was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's what we see happening right here. The Lord is raising up laborers, empowering them with his spirit, and sending them out into the fields of harvest. It's a very significant moment. It's also a good strategy. If you want to announce that the gospel is going out to the world, you choose a moment when the world has come to Jerusalem. And here they are, at least the world of Jews. So what happened? Well, we read in verse 1 that they were all together in one place, probably the upper room where they've been waiting. There's probably still in that place. They're all together in one place, and suddenly, unexpectedly, there comes from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Why wind and fire? What do these symbols mean? Well, wind and fire are both scriptural symbols of God's spirit and divine presence. With wind, you can think of a lot of examples of this, but one of the big ones comes from Ezekiel. This is the prophecy or the vision that Ezekiel sees of the valley of dry bones. You guys know this vision of Ezekiel's? It's probably one of the most memorable um, uh, visions that he gives us in his, in his uh, book of prophecy. Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones has breath that comes from the four winds and it brings life to the bones that are in the valley and it connects that breath to, the Holy, to God's spirit, to the Holy Spirit. That's what that passage shows. So there's, there's breath, wind, and the Holy Spirit all together and very powerfully working to bring life and to produce life. 
Jesus says to Nicodemus concerning the work of the Spirit, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. So is everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. There's another strong connection between wind and the Holy Spirit. And after his resurrection, at one of those encounters that Jesus has with his disciples, he says he he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself makes this connection between breath, wind, and the Holy Spirit. The biblical word for spirit, uh, the words, both in Hebrew and in Greek, ruach in um, Hebrew and uh, pneuma in Greek, are both words that mean breath and wind. So that that connection is very strong. And so this wind that comes is a symbol of the coming, a visible sign of of what's happening here among them. There's also a strong connection made in Scripture between God's divine presence and fire. When Moses first encounters the presence of God out in, uh, at Mount Horeb in Midian, when he's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, God appears to him in the form of a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. That symbolizes the presence of God, this blazing fire. Later, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, God um, accompanies them in the form of a pillar of fire at night so that they can be led in the way. And just a few chapters after that, in Exodus 24, we see that the glory of the Lord descends upon the mountain. And, and And it says, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, it was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. This is the presence of the Lord visibly depicted in the form of fire. So at Sinai, God came down and rested on the mountain in the form of fire in order to give the law to his people. And here at Pentecost, again, the Holy Spirit descends upon each one of his disciples, his, each, each new holy temple, each little Sinai, in order to begin to announce the gospel to the world. Both these visible signs, though, are signs. They're pointing to the deeper truth, the reality of the presence of the Spirit of God and his activity among them. It says in verse 4 that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to read to you what Matthew Henry says about this because it was just a sweet reminder to me of what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is on his comments on this passage. He says, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost more plentifully and powerfully than they were before. They were filled with the graces of the Spirit and were more than ever under his sanctifying influences, were now holy and heavenly and spiritual, more weaned from this world and better acquainted with the other. They were more filled with the comforts of the Spirit, rejoiced more than ever in the love of Christ and the hope of heaven, and in it all their griefs and fears were swallowed up. Isn't that just beautiful? That's what the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, does. He comes and he fills us so with a sense of Jesus Christ and the glory of Christ and the, and the wonder of, a, of our salvation in him that we should be forgiven by Jesus and of so much and that we should be so loved of the Father, and that our hearts should cry out, Abba, Father. He fills us with these things. And it's such a comfort to us. 
And out of that filling, they explode (laughs) with testimony, declaration of what they now know more fully who God is. This is a spirit of revelation, not just of comfort, but because Jesus says, when he comes, he will remind you of all the things I've said, and he'll give you understanding of all that I meant. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for them. And they just erupt in testimony and prophetic declaration of the mighty deeds of God. Now this miracle, the nature of this miracle of tongues, it says in verse 4 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The nature of this miracle of the tongues is much debated. Lots of ink spilled over what's actually going on here. And I think if we just had the book of Acts, and that's all we knew about this gift of tongues, was what Luke records for us in Acts, we would all conclude that what's, being, what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit is giving them the knowledge spontaneously, without study and the usual means, spontaneous, miraculous knowledge and, and facility with actual foreign languages that they're speaking to the people. I think if that's all we had to go on was the accounts and acts, that's what we would naturally conclude. The problem, <laughs> the, the debates center on when you try to compare what's happening here with what Paul seems to be addressing in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. That's when the, the confusion sets in and the debates come. It does seem that, if, that what Paul is addressing in Corinthians may be something that's like um, not known languages, that that's what they're using, that they're speaking in a kind of angelic language or some other non-language-like utterance, like, or that it is language-like, but it's not a real language. That seems to be maybe what Paul's addressing in the practice in Corinth. But here, it seems like the most natural reading is that they're, they're suddenly given supernatural ability by the Holy Spirit to convey the message that's welling up in their hearts by the Spirit in languages that they don't know. And that is a miracle, an amazing thing. Why were they given this ability to speak in foreign languages? What does this mean? It's helpful to consider this event in Acts in light of the curse of Babel which took place back in Genesis 11. Do you remember this? I think it's helpful for us to read it. Would you put it up on the screen? This is from Genesis 11. This is, this is after the flood, right? Yeah, this is after the flood. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it, it came about as they journeyed east, as all his people with one language, sent one words, and they're all packed together, and they're all journeying together east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Remember that. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purposed 
to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So what was going on there is this, that under Adam and in Adam and Noah, there were man, all of us were under this creation mandate. Have you heard of the creation mandate? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth, spread out on the earth and fill it up with people. That's the creation mandate from God. What are they doing? Not that. They're, they're banding together. They're like rebelliously refusing to submit to God's purpose and will and their mandate from him. Like very intentionally, God comes down and sees what they're doing. They're, they're trying to stick together. They want to build a city that will contain them all. And in the middle of the city is this tower, which is like, what did I say in the first service? Because I was tempted to, yeah. What did I say? A thumb in the eye of God. Let's make a name for ourselves. That's what the meaning of this tower was. So God comes down and he sees that this people can do anything they want to do and we need to put a stop to this. And so he confuses their language and he scatters them over this because they can't talk to each other. So they find each other, those who speak a common language, and they, they band up and they go out and they settle someplace else. And God forces them to fulfill his mandate in this way. And he also creates these barriers. Through Basically, he curses them with foreign languages so that they, of necessity, so that they can't accomplish all the wickedness and rebelliousness that they otherwise would. And that's where all of our languages come from the curse of God. So people like to speak about this event at Pentecost as if it's a reversal of the curse of Babel. I don't think it's a reversal. I think that says too much. I think what it is, is God transcending or overcoming that curse and turning it into a blessing. He is sending his message. He's announcing his message in the language of all the peoples. He's building a bridge through this gift of the Spirit into your life, your land, your people, your tribe, and he's coming and announcing good news to you. He's reuniting men who have been divided, not under a common language, but under a common Lord, making us members together of one spiritual kingdom, and he's doing that by coming to us and proclaiming to us in our native tongue the terms of peace that he offers us in the gospel. Calvin makes this connection between Babel and Acts 2, and he says, this reflects the marvelous goodness of God in that a punishment for human pride was transformed into a means of blessing. God furnishes the apostles with a diversity of tongues that he may call back lost and wandering men into the blessings of unity. Unity with God. Sinner, sinful men, wicked, 
children of wrath, offensive to God, this spirit comes and it establishes unity with him, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And a consequential unity between men. And many of us who have traveled abroad know this by experience. Who here has traveled abroad and met some, a foreigner who is a Christian? And what did you experience? It's like immediately this kinship that transcends nation, language, background, particular viewpoints, food, all the things that normally separate us and, and divide us and, and make us distinct from each other are just immediately, because of our love of the Lord, and because of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we're immediately brought together with the most incredible closeness and affection and tenderheartedness and interest in each other. It's like, brother, <laughs> I, didn't know I, ha- I, I didn't know I had you. <laughs> it is the most beautiful thing. The Connells, a dear family of our church, they've just gone for like eight or nine months to Germany on a sabbatical um, there in Germany doing some kind of math that I couldn't possibly explain to you. <laughs> and like uh, uh, the first Sunday that they're there, I saw this on Facebook. The first Sunday they're there, they've, they've linked up with a German church and they have immediate kinship and fellowship in this sweet, humble community of believers. They've, they're translating the sermons into English for them so that they can understand what's being said. They asked one of their daughters to come up and lead a song in English and lead the whole church in singing in English. This is the unity of the Holy Spirit. The world cannot produce that. I spent some time last night watching um, online uh, a video by DuPont, the DuPont Corporation, about equity, diversity, and inclusion training. (laughs) You've been there? (laughs) Parents, you should go home and and look up this video and watch it and should talk about it. This, the world is trying to create unity. But you can't do it. You just can't do it. We are divided. We are prejudiced. We are biased. We are selfish. We are proud. And you might be able, I think it probably does work to a degree, to kind of press people from outside pressure and the fear of losing your job and, and the fear of being canceled and all these outside pressures. And maybe even just through re-education, try to get people that have different backgrounds and viewpoints to come together, get along and work together, be productive together and without anybody feeling slighted or left out. That's what this training is about. And it's taken over the corporate world. They're trying to produce unity, but it can't do it. It can't do it because it's only skin deep, if that. It cannot overcome our prejudices, our biases, our hatred of difference. It can't do it. You can get people maybe to behave civilly towards each other but not more than that. It can't produce this. The other thing that, it, that makes it evil, actually, and contrary to the gospel, is that it tries to put on a level things that God approves of and things that God hates. 
And so it's completely contrary to the unity of the Spirit of God because that unity is created with us all coming and bowing before, equally before the Lord and confessing our faults and acknowledging his goodness and the truth of his word and committing ourselves to a life of repentance from sin. That's the unity of the Spirit. But it is beautiful when it comes. And you don't even have to travel abroad. We have, we have Jürgen here, um, Pastor von Hagen from Germany, and he pastors a church in Germany that's made up of older Germans mostly and also young African immigrants. This is another wonderful example of the unity of the Spirit where these people have an affection and a love. I'm sure it's rocky and difficult, just as any bringing two cultures together. This is what marriage is, you know, bringing two cultures together. It's rocky and difficult, but it's also beautiful. And in this case, because of the, they, they love the Lord, they have the Holy Spirit, and so they delight together in one another. It's a beautiful thing. But you don't have to travel abroad to find this. We experience the same thing, many of us, in our homes, in our families, where we, because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not shared with family members, we have way more in common with people here in the pews next to us than we do with uh, family members that are lost and don't know the Lord. There's a, there's a Christian saying that, is, that says, water is thicker than blood. It's a theological statement. The water of baptism is, binds us more firmly and closely together than blood relation can even do. But it's also something that we know by experience. We find ourselves closer, have closer kinship. The deepest bonds of affection and love, commitment, are created by the Holy Spirit of God. If only the world could know this, huh? We know the Lord. We know the Spirit. We know the message of the gospel, and we know the power of it in our lives. We need to do what these people did, which is start declaring it and proclaiming it to the world. Did you see the way Christians were relating to each other at the end of this chapter? It's one of the reasons I wanted to read the whole thing. So the Spirit comes, Peter preaches, they repent, and then did you see the fruit in their lives together? The sympathy that they have for one another where people are selling their property and possessions and coming and sharing it with people who have need. They're, they're of one mind together continually. There's the sweetness of fellowship created by the Holy Spirit. It's closer and more loving and more generous even than family the household of faith. Where does this come from? It comes from Pentecost. It comes from right here in the scriptures, this moment. It's a unity that's established and begun to be established and to spread its influence by the Spirit of God. Political unions, nation states and the boundaries of nations, family unions and the boundaries of family, these are blessings from God and should be respected the gospel does not seek to destroy them, but rather it dignifies them and gives them their proper and due place in our lives. But there is a union that is infinitely superior to these that transcends them all and binds men together in the deepest possible levels of closeness and commitment. 
That is the unity of faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the banner under which the church marches into the world, into all the nations, and it, it posts the flag there. And it doesn't post the flag to say, America needs to cease to exist, close the capital, a new king is in town. No, it does that. It, it respects the, the, the organization and the framework of a country. But it says, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes to establish this, this citizenship in the spiritual kingdom of heaven, which seats the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of our hearts and bears the most beautiful fruit of repentance and love and peace in a society. How does that gospel message intend to go out to the nations? This chapter shows us very clearly that it's to be proclaimed to them by all God's people. This is our job. If the Great Commission didn't make it clear enough, this comes to reinforce with the, with the, the, the gift of languages that this mission is for the world. We're to bring this message to the people wherever they are and as they are. Who was in the upper room that day? Not just the 12 apostles. Last time we, we heard a number, it was 120 persons were there together in that room. And that may well have increased because now we're at a feast day and there's more people in town. More Galileans have likely come for the celebration of this feast. So there may be more than 120 people gathered together prayerfully waiting at this moment when the Holy Spirit's poured out. He doesn't just get poured out on the 12 apostles, but on all the disciples that were gathered there together. Depending on how you read it, there's at least 16 languages represented here. So there had to be more than the apostles if they were covering all the bases. But there's probably more when you assume different dialects and, and things like that. Now, all these people who heard the gospel that day were Jews. Almost all. There was one mention of proselytes from Rome. These are Jews from all over the world, and they've come together for this, for worship. And what is it that draws them to, the, to what's going on? You see that it says in verse 6, when this sound occurred, what sound is he referring to? Is it the sound of the wind, or is it the sound of the speaking? Well, it could be both, but it's definitely at least the sound of the speaking itself. 120 persons waiting in a room, gathering a crowd of at least 3,000, because 3,000 believe, they've moved outside. At some point in this, we don't really, we don't understand, we're not given all these details, but they can't fit. <laughs> this is not all happening in a room. At some point in this, they've moved outside, and they are declaring publicly the mighty deeds of God in all these languages, and it's gathering a crowd. It's the sound of the speaking, and the declaration, and it's a public event. It's drawing a crowd. Now, what were the disciples speaking? This point gets overlooked. When people debate and talk about and take an interest in Acts 2, I think they miss the main point. The main point is here. We get fixated on the manner of the speaking, the speaking in tongues, and we miss sight of the matter, what they're speaking. 
What are they speaking? It says in verse 4 they're speaking as the Holy Spirit himself was giving them utterance, but what, was, what were they uttering? Verse 11, the crowd themselves tell us what they were saying. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now consider this little group. Where had they just been? Hunkered down in a room, waiting patiently. I want to read you what Matthew Henry says this, about this. And this is the first paragraph of his comments on chapter 2. He says, During those days the apostles, though they had received orders to preach the gospel to every creature, the Great Commission, and that that was to begin at Jerusalem, yet lay perfectly windbound, incognito, concealed, and not offering to preach. <laughs> but in this chapter, the north wind and the south wind awake, and then they awake, and we have them in the pulpit presently. That's what's happening here. Taking this little afraid, scared bunch of people, Jesus, when he appeared to them in John 20, it specifically mentions that they closed the doors for fear of the Jews. <laughs> they were afraid for their lives. Jesus had sent them back into the hot zone, and here they are waiting for whatever promise, they don't understand is coming, having been given this mission, and they don't know what to do. They're afraid. And something happens to take this little band of, of, of scared, timid people and make them bold in proclamation. What is it that happens? God sends his spirit. God sends his spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us bold, who fills us with joy and believing to overflowing. It's the Holy Spirit. You feeling bold? Can you relate to this little band of scared people? No, I can. So I spend most of my life feeling like that. Afraid to proclaim, afraid to speak out, afraid to declare the mighty deeds of God. And yet we see that the Holy Spirit empowers people like you and me. <laughs> They're not different than you and me. People like you and me, he empowers to become prophets boldly declaring the word of God, the gospel. They're doing this so boldly, so charismatically, so out there, so exuberantly, exuberantly that people accuse them of being drunk. It says in verse 13, others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. And Peter feels defensive of them and he stands up and he wants them to know this is not liquid courage talking you know what liquid courage is it's alcohol that overcomes your inhibitions and makes you act in ways that you would not normally act they're not acting normally these people they're out there they're proclaiming things boldly it's not liquid courage Something else is happening. So Peter begins to explain from the prophet Joel. He wants the crowd to understand that this is the fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, as I read this prophecy from Joel, Peter's defense, I want you to be thinking, what is Joel not emphasizing from previously in the passage? So Joel, Peter's explaining what's happening, what's going on for the people, 
and Joel emphasizes some things, and he is silent about other things. So you tell me. So Peter taking his stand, this is verse 14. Peter taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, who said, And it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So Joel is emphasizing prophecy. What is he not talking about? Tongues. Isn't that interesting? Now, tongues are a hugely significant part of what is going on here, and God means things, and he's, he's teaching his people and demonstrating things about what he's intending to do in this world from here on out. But the fulfillment that Joel predicts is what they're talking about and how they're talking about it with boldness and conviction, which is the spirit of prophecy that has descended upon them. They have now become bold as prophets. This was something, and it's something Joel says is gonna happen, not like it did in the old days, on several, uh, some few people who got appoints. It's gonna happen on everybody. It's coming on all mankind, sons and daughters, young men, old men, even bond slaves, both men and women. They all shall prophesy. What is the gift of prophecy? And who is it for? We talk, talk a lot about spiritual gifts. You guys ever talked about spiritual gifts before in, church, in your church background? Taking surveys about spiritual gifts? Who's the gift, who has the gift of prophecy? Who has the responsibility to fulfill that gift? Who's it for? I have tried, I have wanted to say this next thing to the second service now for many weeks. I've remembered it to say it three times now to the first service, but not to you guys. So you're getting it for the first time today. There is this beautiful verse in John chapter 7 that Max Carell introduced me to a long time ago, and it's really stuck with me. I think it's a profound verse about the nature of prophecy and you and me. John chapter 7, Jesus is say, says concerning John the Baptist, he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. What does he mean by that? Why is there no one greater than John? Well, John was the last of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. What are Old Testament prophets doing? They're looking ahead into the future, trying to see what they can discern with the help of the Spirit about Jesus Christ, who he was, what kind of person he would be, when he would come, what he would do. That's what a prophet was interested in in the Old Testament, looking ahead to see what they could discern about the Lord Jesus Christ. And John stood right on the edge of the coming, I mean, in fact, there Jesus was in the flesh. Behold the Lamb of God. He saw him with his own physical eyes. 
no one greater than John the Baptist because of his proximity to the fulfillment of all prophecy, Jesus Christ. But John, um, Jesus goes on to say, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's an amazing statement. No one greater born of women than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What, is, what does that mean? It means Jesus is recognizing you know more than John the Baptist. You have more knowledge, more insight about the Lord Jesus Christ by far than John ever had. He died before Jesus was crucified. He could recognize him in the flesh. He knew he was the Lamb of God, but he lacked a whole lot of knowledge that you and I take for granted and enjoy and benefit from. A whole lot. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We have the testimony of Jesus, you and me, entrusted to us. I'm making the case that we have the burden of prophecy on our shoulders. You and me. We have the, the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And that's been entrusted to us. Old Testament prophets had two things that they did. They foretold events that were to come in the future, and they also foretold, declared the mighty deeds of God. The thing foretelling has largely ceased as of necessity today because it mostly was used to point to and look to the coming of Jesus who has come. But we're left with a whole lot of forth telling to do. You and me, the church of Jesus Christ, the witness of the saints, the testimony of Jesus. We've talked a little bit about what's normative from the book of Acts. What, what, what carries forward from these amazing events, these unique experiences that are happening through the book. What do we expect from them to exist among us today? Well, at the very least, a spirit of prophecy <laughs> should continue in the church. And it should be something we all desire to possess and to exhibit and to use. Who does it come from? the Holy Spirit. We need a forth-telling spirit, you and me, this church. This is a place of weakness in our church. We are one repressed group of people. I'm chief among you. God's spirit can overcome that. Look at it. Powerfully. Isn't there a verse that says, won't he give his Holy Spirit to those who ask? Can someone quote it? No? <laughs> it's in Luke. 
Well, it says that. He will give his Holy Spirit to those who ask. Brothers and sisters, we should ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with all joy in believing. Because that's where this stuff comes from. It doesn't come from us trying, oh, I got to be a prophet today. It comes from, oh, I love the Lord. He has done great things for me. Has the Lord done great things for you? As pastors, we like to look around the room sometimes and just remember, we just, you know, the files open and we remember the great things that we know and there's many things we don't know. The great things the Lord has done. Each of us has a compelling story and account to tell. Very similar stories, lots of unique details that make it fascinating and interesting. Start there. Tell people what the Lord has done for you. This is a beautiful a verse in Psalm 66 which says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. We need God to fill us, you and me, with a spirit of prophecy, spirit of joy and peace and believing that is eager to give glory to God wherever we are, with whomever we're with. This is a place we need to grow as a church. May God help us to do it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to us and that you would pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us as a congregation. And that we would not be afraid or timid or weak in our faith, but that we would abound with knowledge and abound with joy and and delight in understanding and in believing and that we would with eagerness with boldness with freedom that is supernatural more and more be able to testify and to declare the mighty deeds which you have done and accomplished for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.